We've got a lot to cover. We're going to do some theological heavy lifting this morning. We're going to cover some theological terms. We're going to talk about some, uh, some pretty deep, deep things, but uh, it's going to be good. It's, it's a lot for us to, to look at, but I trust that you guys can, can hang with me. You know, they tell you, don't get, don't get too deep with some of this stuff because you'll lose people, but I think you guys are going to be able to hang with me today, and I think you guys are going to see some things in Scripture as we go throughout the book of Exodus that will... Uh, for me, it blows my mind, and it certainly makes my heart rejoice as we go through it. I think we're going to start seeing some of those this morning. But before we get there, let's do a little theological trivia just to get us started this morning. Uh, this is the feedback portion of the service, so I'm going to ask some questions, and I want you guys to answer them. Uh, on what day did God rest? Seventh. All right. How many years does Israel wander in the desert? Forty. All right. Forty. Good. How old was Abraham when he finally became a father? He's 100. 99 is when he found out. 100 whenever Isaac was actually born. How, or, I'm sorry, when he became a father. I, see, I asked that question wrong. When Isaac was born. Uh, how many days did it rain while Moses was on the ark? Oh, there you go. That's the trick question, always. Dumb joke, dumb joke. Moses wasn't on the ark. I don't know how many of you guys have heard that before and were prepared for that one. But what if I told you Moses was on the ark? And the next time somebody tells you that dumb joke, you can say, well, wait a minute, that's not true. And you're thinking, no, he wasn't. That was Noah. Well, you're going to find out today how Moses was, in fact, actually on the ark. This is what we're going to look at this morning. Because we're going to start looking at Moses' story and we're going to find out uh, a lot about him. And, and, and really, he's going to be the main man of the story as we go throughout this whole book of Exodus. And as we go through here, what you're going to start to see is that Moses is, in fact, not just the main man of the story, but he points to the main man of all of Scripture. He points us to Jesus and he points us to a much bigger story that Scripture is telling. If you weren't here last week, we saw the setting for the rest of this book, kind of the chapter 1 gives us the, uh, the, the place and the, and the setting for all of the book of Exodus, how things begin. You really cover several hundred years in the first chapter, and then uh, chapter 2 you cover just a, a little bit, and then in the rest of the book you're going to cover just really the span of about a year or so after we get, we get through chapter 2. So we're going we're gonna to look at all kinds of different things. And what we saw last week is that uh, Pharaoh's getting nervous about Israel. He's worried about Israel. He's worried about Israel. He's worried about these, these, these Hebrews that are, that are there because they are growing in number. And they're growing faster than his Egyptian people. And he gets to, to the point where he realizes if these guys decide to overthrow us, then we're in real trouble. If these guys decide to come up against us and have an uprising against us, we're going to be in real trouble. And we're going to be in real trouble because there's so many of them. And so he comes up with a solution. And what was the solution? Throw the babies in the river. Throw the baby boys in the river when they're born. That was his plan. Treat them like property to be disposed of. And whenever you do that, that will keep the Israel population under control. Now, his plan didn't work perfectly. We saw that last week, that the midwives didn't follow what he was, he was laying out for them. But that was his plan. And the policy does go into place, and it does happen. This is not like one of those things, he made a policy, but it never got implemented. It totally did, and it doesn't work perfectly, but it definitely happens. So that's the context of the story. That's the context of chapter 2 as we get into this. 
And let's see how one family and one baby in particular moves within that setting. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. That's going to be really important eventually. We're not going to talk about it today, but that's just something to kind of make a little, little note on. That's going to be important. A man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a, a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to, the ba- went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. Seeing the basket among the reeds, she sent her slave girl to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a woman from the Hebrews to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. What a crazy story. There's so much we could look at in this. There's so much that we could talk about from the faith of the parents and the the crazy choice the parents took to what happens with Pharaoh's daughter. There's all kinds of different aspects that we could look at this. It is a crazy, crazy story. But let's just consider some of these details because honestly, we're left with a lot of questions here that the text just doesn't answer for us. It doesn't give us a lot of details. It doesn't tell us why it took three months for all of this to happen. It doesn't tell us what happened within that three months and what was going on during that time when Moses was first born. It doesn't tell us what they did with the baby. It doesn't tell us what prompted them to now take this drastic measure of putting this baby in a basket and sending him down the Nile River. None of those questions are asked for us, and to to look further into that would be speculation. So we don't want to go too much further. But think about this. We know how the story turns out, right? We know that Moses eventually floats down the river and Pharaoh's daughter takes him. But just think about the, the, the other side of that. What would, what would push them to make this kind of choice? I mean, they put a baby in a basket and sent it down the Nile. I'm not going to put my three-month-old in Mossy Creek and say, see how this turns out, let alone the Nile, right? That seems like a complete act of desperation. What would push a mom to do this? A complete act of desperation, but what we now know is that God was with him. God was with him so much so that it honestly has to make you laugh just a little bit. Pharaoh makes decrees that all the boys be thrown into the Nile. God places a boy in the Nile just to have Pharaoh's daughter rescue him. Once he is rescued, she then needs to find someone to nurse him. So she sends for Moses' mother and pays her to nurse him. If you don't appreciate the sense of humor and irony that God has, I can't help you. God takes the the plans of man, turns them, subdues them, overtakes them, and makes those plans ultimately serve him. We would do well to remember that even when the evil of abortion, like we talked about last week, plays out in our political halls, man makes plans, man makes laws, man makes decrees and policies, but God will accomplish His will. 
So Pharaoh's daughter takes in Moses, gives him a name, and then hands him back off to his real mother for a short period of time and says, bring him back here soon once he's done nursing, and I will raise him within the halls of the palace. And we'll get to that next week and and figure out some of the implications of that. But in this short little story, we've got a lot going on that has some profound meaning. But in order to understand that meaning, we're going to have to do a little bit of work here. We're going, to have to, we're going to have to do a little bit of kind of theological lifting. So we talked a lot last week. We could talk about it again this week. We've really talked about it the last three weeks. And you could really cover it this week or any other week in the book of Exodus about God's sovereignty. You know, the title of this series is No Other Gods. And really, that's what the book of Exodus is going to drive home every single week. That God is completely in control, completely sovereign. 100% everything submits, bows to Him. Right? Every week we can talk about that. We talked about, the, about Abraham. We talked about Joseph leading into the book. Last week we talked about how Pharaoh made these decrees and he made these plans. But even in the midst of suffering, God was at work and God was using that and turning that against Pharaoh, right? So we've seen this over and over and over again. And this week we could see, say the same thing. God is completely in control. But I, I don't want to just make that the point Every week, even though I'll probably say something like that every week because it's good to drill that in our heads. I say this a lot. Repetition is the mother of all learning. And Exodus is going to drive that in our heads. But there's some other theological lifting that I want to do here because in the book of Exodus, this is going to happen over and over and over and over again. Dozens, maybe hundreds of times in this book. We're going to see uh, this come up. And what I want to introduce you to this morning is what theologians call biblical typology. Biblical typology. Now, don't check out on me because you're like, I don't know what that is. Just hang with me here. It's biblical typology. Now, I asked somebody this week, do you know what biblical typology is? And they said, is that the font that they use in your Bible? That's not what we're talking about. Different kind of typology. Totally different there, all right? What we're talking about is that whenever you look here in this passage and you look all throughout the book of Exodus, Moses will serve, and a hundred other different things as well, but Moses will serve in Scripture in a role that's known as a type. Now, a type is something that's kind of like the forerunner to something else, kind of the initial model of something else, kind of an incomplete picture of something that's meant to have a fuller fulfillment, a fuller picture later on. Now, we might understand this in, in, in the way we would use the word prototype. See, it's got the word type in there, same kind of thing, a prototype. Now, this is an imperfect analogy, so just hang with me here, but I want to use it because I think it's going to be helpful for us in how we use this word type. And so I brought this thing with me this morning. And you're like, what is this thing? What, why would you have this thing here? This thing is heavy. I don't really have a good place to put it. This thing is heavy. And, uh, and this cool little thing that sits uh, at, my, uh, at my dad's house, and uh, it's, it's this thing, it's a, it's a working prototype for something that my great-grandfather's brother once invented. So this has been around, been in my family for a long time, kind of passed down. It's for use in coal mine, and it's a little coal car that's designed to go in some real tight spaces. You can see, i got a picture here. Like, my dad's got this on his bookshelf and right below it. This is the patent that was issued for it. Cool little deal, little piece of family history for me. And this, the sides come up, coal gets dumped out, sides come back down, and it goes on through. But this is not, like, the full size. This is the smaller 
kind of working model, right? So the bigger thing would be considerably larger. And that's what this, this was, and this is what this was made for. So it's just a cool little thing that has always been around in my family. It used to be old and rusted. My dad cleaned it up and got it working. And uh, it's a cool little thing. But, and it, and it kind of helps us on how we use this word prototype. And so I'll refer to this a little bit more here in, in just a few minutes. And there's a few different ways that you can use that word prototype. One, we can talk about a prototypical person or a prototypical thing. So people like to say Peyton Manning is the prototypical quarterback. He's smart. He's got a big arm. He's tall. He's a leader. He's everything that you would want to have in a quarterback. If you could design a quarterback, he would be the mold. That's not the way we're using that word here today, all right? That's not what we're talking about. Not a prototypical thing. Not that way. A second way is that a prototype is an initial model that is insufficient, incomplete, but it can give you a picture of what the eventual finished product will look like. So it's the initial piece of something that says, hey, I'm going to make this thing that's eventually going to be here. It's going to be much better than this one is, but this will give you an idea of what it looks like. And the purpose is so that you can, you can see it and it's a good representation of what the final product will be. That's a little closer to what we're using here. So this is much smaller. It's not very big. It's not meant to be the final product. It's meant to be a lesser representation of what the larger full product will be. You guys tracking with me now? You guys with me? All right. So that's how we're using this word. But now hang with me here. We're not going to use the word prototype. Because prototype means like it's, it's something else. And biblically, there are words that go with this that, that are technical and actually work. And the way that, that we're going to use this, the way that we're going to use the, uh, uh, the words here is we're going to talk about something that's a type and something that's an anti-type. So no prototype, not going to use that word. That's going to be gone. And we're going to talk about something else. We're going to talk about a type and an anti-type. So the type is the initial thing. The anti-type is the ultimate fulfillment that gives you the fuller picture of what the lesser thing was. All right, so you checking that with me there? All right, so say it with me. So the, the first thing here is the incomplete, insufficient picture is the type. All right, good. The fuller, completed picture is the anti-type. All right, you guys got it. You're tracking with me. Type, anti-type. We're going to need to hold on to those terms way past this morning because almost every week in the book of Exodus, we're going to see this. Moses is the type, Jesus is the anti-type. Over and over again, we're going to see how something Moses does, a role he plays, something he says, something about Moses is going to point to us, it's going to prefigure Jesus, and it's going to, it's going to point us to him so that when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, we can say, oh yeah, I've seen that before. Moses kind of did that. But now this is Jesus doing it in a better way, a more full way. Moses did something like that. I've seen that before. And we'll use words like, like the truer and the greater. So, so Jesus is the truer and the greater Moses, the truer and the greater uh, mediator, those type of things. We'll talk about shadows and patterns and, and how, how the, the Old Testament points us to the new, how the, the Old Testament reminds us of something in the new, how it shows us something, fulfillment. These are the type of words we'll use when we start talking about type and antitype. So let's see how that plays out for us this morning. Let's see how this one little story 
works. And my prayer is that as you see some of these themes start to tie together, your heart will leap with joy in the same way that mine has. As I was preparing this message, I just found myself so many times just, just saying, yes, 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 it's so good, it's so true, and I hope that you will see that this morning. So the first thing that we need to acknowledge is the clear way that this story finds a mirror in the New Testament with the birth of Jesus. Like Moses, Jesus was to be the deliverer of his people. That's what Mary was told. That's what Zechariah was told in the prophecy. That's what, uh, that's what John that was told about John the Baptist. He was going to be the precursor for the deliverer that would come. But before Jesus could do that, he too had to flee. In his case, ironically, he had to flee to Egypt to escape the command of the king to murder the baby boys. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what we read here in chapter 2. That's a quick way to see a type and an anti-type relationship. But there's another one in the story that's even more apparent for us, and it will drive us to the gospel. It will take us right to the gospel. Look, look again with me in verse 3. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. And she placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Now, there's a word that's used there for basket in verse 3. It's the Hebrew word tabah. Does anybody have any idea what that word might be? It's used one other time in Scripture referring to one other thing. And it's the same word that's used for Noah and his ark. The word for basket is the same word for ark. So Moses is placed in an ark. Now, Moses' ark's a little bit smaller, doesn't have as much company with him. Things are a little bit different, but the picture is the same. So next time somebody makes that dumb joke, you can say, no, Moses was in an ark for about 30 minutes, or however long it took for him to float down the aisle until he was found. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. But he was on an ark. He was in an ark. And it's Moses on this ark that brings out so many beautiful truths. Just like Noah, Moses was on the ark and he was entirely dependent upon God to save him. Noah wasn't going to make that boat float and neither was Moses. Don't you think about this. You're putting a kid in a basket and sending him down the Nile River, the crocodile infested Nile River. He was three months old. He was entirely dependent upon something outside of him to save him. Moses was not going to save himself at three months old. There's no way. It wasn't going to happen. It could not happen. Whatever happened when he got put in that basket, he was not going to save himself. He was going to need some outside intervention if he had any chance of survival. And God mercifully grants this. He saves him. And then he gives him the name Moses. Or she gives him the name Moses. Which we're told it means that God draws out. That God draws out. And man, what a beautiful picture we have there. Here it is. It's not Moses that's the type. But it's the event of Moses being put in the ark. He's placed in a situation where he is hopeless. Where death is assured if someone outside of him does not intervene. Where his three-month-old little arms 
are not going to be able to save him. Three months old, if that basket tips and he comes out of that basket, he's not going to swim himself to safety. Moses' job, whenever he's put in this basket and sent down the Nile River, is not to paddle his way over to the other side so that he can strategically put himself in the path of Pharaoh's daughter and, and find a way for himself to be saved. He's not put into the river and said, Swim your little heart out, Moses. You'll make it. I believe in you. Just try hard enough. His little arms and his little legs are not going to kick hard enough to save him in the Nile. He's not going to make it. And so it is with us. We too are in a situation where we are hopeless. We are staring down death if someone outside of us does not intervene. Oh, but just like Moses, God does intervene on our behalf. Just like Moses, Moses had someone come to him and pull him out and to draw him out. And God, too, sends someone to draw us out. Our feeble little hands cannot save us. Our feeble actions of of trying to, to please someone are not going to get us to the other side. There's no amount of going to church or putting your offering in the box or being nice to someone or just being good. There's no amount of that that's going to swim you to the other side. You are in danger if you can't get there. And we can't. Y'all ever seen those little baby swimming classes? You seen those? Like, like little five, six-month-old babies, they just throw them in the water and they're like, ah, I guess he'll float, he'll figure it out. And, and somehow the kid figures it out. You seen that, right? It looks like, the, like the, the cover of a Nirvana album or something. The, the baby's just in, in the water, and, and he figures out how to swim somehow. Listen, I don't care how many swimming classes Moses has. He's not getting to the other side of the Nile. He's not going to make it. He's not going to make it. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves either. Our problem isn't the Nile River, though. Our problem is far more dire. Our problem is sin. And our sin is killing us, and it will kill us. Sin is our offense to God and our, our unwillingness to submit to him as our king. Our inability and unwillingness to say, God, you are in control of my life. I'm done being the one that's captaining my ship. I need you to direct my ark to the place that will save me because I cannot save myself. I've tried to steer this ship, and all I'm doing is going over a waterfall. I need someone else. Sin is us saying, I've got it. I'll be the captain of this ship. It is us making an offense to God saying, I don't need you. I don't need your help. I'm in control here. And it's that river that we find ourselves drowning in. If something or someone doesn't intervene, then we have no hope. We need an ark. We need a person to draw us from the river, just like Pharaoh's daughters. But here's the great news. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were drowning, Christ drew us out. While we had no hope, while we were flailing away on our way to the bottom, Christ reached in and pulled us out, just like Moses This is the truer and the greater fulfillment of the picture we see here in chapter 2. This is the type and the anti-type. 
This is the, the picture here. The, the, the lesser representation in the old made truer, greater, and more glorious in the new. This is the picture that we have. This is what we were given with Moses. The picture of Moses in the ark being drawn from the, the water is incomplete. And it's insufficient. But it points us to something larger. To something better. And that's what we see with Christ. Don't miss this. Don't miss how Christ rescues us here. We don't swim to him. Moses didn't swim to the princess. Moses didn't guide his ark to the princess. We are utterly helpless, totally dependent on Christ. And he looks on us with compassion and he pulls us to safety. Do you know what it means to be loved like that? It's all grace. It's all undeserved. It's all unearned and unmerited. It is simply the kindness of the king that pulls us to safety and nothing else. That's the God we serve. That's the God we call king. That's our savior. Do you know God like that? Do you know what it's like to follow a God like that? Do you know what it's like to have a God like that say, I love you? For some of you that grew up in the South, others of you that grew up Catholic, for others of you that were part of another religious system, what you were almost certainly taught is that you've got to swim as hard as you can with all of your might, and you might, just maybe, possibly, Maybe, hopefully, you can swim hard enough to where you can get to that place where your three-month-old little arms can save you. And then maybe, if you swim hard enough, Jesus will reach out from the steps and pull you in. That's what every other religion teaches you. If it's not Jesus on the other end, it's some, some deity on the other end that will reach out and, and pull you. But they've got to be safe here on the steps. And they'll pull you in so long as you swim hard enough to get there. That's the vast, the vast religion in the South that we call Christian, and it's not. That's the Catholic faith. That's, that's every other religious system. Swim hard enough, and he'll reach out, and he'll pull you if you get close enough. Now, how do you know if you swim hard enough? You don't know until you die. And then you just hope that you got somewhere close. But here's the thing, man. Moses can swim all he wants with his three-month-old. He's not moving past the bank. He's not making it to the other side. No God's going to pull him out because that God's way on the other side, far away, and Moses can't swim hard enough to get there. But do you know a God that says, you don't need to swim, Moses. You're in an ark. I've got you safe. Let me pull you in. And not only does he get pulled in, do you see this? Not only does Moses get pulled into safety, he becomes part of the king's house. He becomes part of the king's house. And the king says, now this, in, in Moses' case, the princess says, I've got you now, Moses. I've got you. You're going to be mine. I'm going to bring you to live with me. I'm going to take care of you. And sure, I'll use a little help with that, but I'm going to bring you in to be one of my 
children. And for us, it's not the princess, it's not the daughter of the king, it's the king that says, come to the house, come be a part of the house with me, come be my son, I have adopted you, come be my daughter, you are mine. I have pulled you out of the water, I have pulled you out of your sin, I have pulled you out of your helpless state, and I have made you my son and my daughter. Come live and be with me. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's a Christian. A Christian is not someone who swims hard enough to get to the other side. A Christian is someone who has been drawn out and made a son or a daughter of the king. To rest in that truth and to rejoice and to celebrate that the one that came into the filthy river and got us. Man, do you see that? This is what we as Christians call the gospel. It's the good news that he saved us, that he brought us to himself. And it's the best news you could ever hear. Don't miss this. There's another picture that's in here, and I'm, I'm not going to belabor it, but I want to I I draw our attention to this. As Christians, we do something really weird. We do something really weird. We tell people whenever you come and you say, Christ, I need you to save me. I need you to rescue me. We say, that's all you need to be as a Christian. But we want you to do something. We want you to participate in this symbol. And this symbol is called baptism. And we will, we will take people and we'll take them to a lake or we'll take them to a, a, a river or we'll take them to a, a swimming pool and we'll, or put them in a baptistry and we'll dunk them in water and we'll pull them up. It's weird. It's a weird deal. If you're not part of the Christian faith, if you're not part of what we do and you're looking on that from the outside, you look at that and you think... Man, that's really strange what some of those Christians do. But do you understand one of the reasons why we do that? It's this right here. It's this right here to symbolize this picture. The helpless baby drawn up out of the water by Christ. That's us. Washed from our sin, drawn out and rescued by Christ. Drawn from the water. That's the picture. That's what baptism is. This morning, that's all we're going to look at. But I hope that you see the picture there. I hope you see the picture that whenever you go to the New Testament, what, what you see in the old is fulfilled in the new. What's a shadow in the old is the reality in the new. What's a, a, a picture, an insufficient, a, a half full picture in the old is completed and full in the new. Moses was drawn from the water and Christ draws us. Do you know your salvation in that same kind of language, in that same kind of story? Do you know your Savior in that same kind of way? The world will tell you just keep swimming. What Christ will tell us is you're done swimming. Just come. It's finished. You're mine. Is that how you know your salvation? A sovereign king, a loving king, a beautiful picture of salvation for a helpless child. And that's what we sing about. That's what we celebrate. That's what we've overcome. We've overcome this, not because we have overcome it, but because Christ has brought us in and drawn us out. So when you hear the name Moses for the next year or two, as we're in the book of Exodus, as you hear the name Moses and you think, well, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, that means that he draws 
us out. I hope that you'll see your salvation. You'll see this truth. You'll be able to say, praise God, because he drew me out. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate the truth, the good news of Jesus Christ. That we are helpless. And that is good news. Because that means we can stop striving. We can stop swimming. We can stop paddling with all of our our might. Pretending we can steer our ark. But instead we can just look to you and your mercy and say, save me. Rescue me. Bring me in. Make me yours. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Father, for those in here that are still swimming that are still striving, that are still just hoping that when they die, they will have been good enough. Father, open their eyes and their hearts to a much, much more beautiful story. One that that confesses that we could never be enough. We could never swim far enough or long enough or strong enough. But we have been drawn out. Father, draw us out this morning draw someone this morning out of the water for the first time and let us all celebrate the good news of the gospel it's in Christ's name we pray amen